This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Yeah, well, for General Electric, somebody new came along in just about a year. Uh, Shares of GE rallying up about 8.6%. Stunning shakeup as the company hands the reins to an outsider uh, just about one year after it already named a new CEO. Are you following me? Well... These folks are following GE very closely. Let's get into this with Brooke Sutherland. He's, uh, she is Deals and Industrials columnist at Bloomberg Opinion in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, along with Jim Corridor, equity analyst at CFRA Research on the phone in New York City. Brooke, I'm going to kick it off to you. Um, wow. About a year ago, GE named a new CEO, Mr. Flannery, John Flannery. He's now out, and now there's another new CEO in its place. How do we make sense of this as investors? Sure. So I think, you know, when John Flannery was named to the job, he was put on a very short leash. And I think he was under a considerable amount of pressure to show progress, to turn GE around. And instead, it's been one piece of bad news after another, uh, you know, starting with the $15 billion reserve shortfall at the insurance business, starting with the ongoing challenges in the power market. Did he inherit all this stuff? He did. I mean, he did. these are not problems that he necessarily created, but I think the problem is he didn't move fast enough for investors. They wanted to see more change. They wanted to see more dramatic actions taken. I think he also had a messaging problem and a credibility problem with that guidance number that he gave at the November Investor Day. It was supposed to be this big unveiling of his strategy, and instead it was something of a flop. And then he stuck by those numbers, even as it became pretty obvious to anybody who followed the company that it was extremely unrealistic that he was actually going Going to meet that goal. So, Jim, come on in here, and I want you to pick up, if you can, on, on what Brooke was saying. How much of this is a fundamental problem, and how much of this was a messaging problem for Flannery? Both, because uh, he came in, his job was to fix GE, but in order to do that, he had to first diagnose the problem. And to his credit, he was much more forthright with analysts and investors about the issues that GE was facing. And that ended up being the noose around his neck, because as he came out with bad item after bad item after bad item, investors headed for the exit, and he lost the faith of the board of directors, because there was no turnaround. There was just more and more bad news. So can I just, you know, GE is always been a very complicated company and I feel like since Jeff not Jeff Immelt since Jack Welch that various CEOs have been trying to uncomplicate the company if you will Um, power aviation healthcare oil and gas those are the businesses um, that it's in right now Um, Jim are those the right businesses for GE to be in and and again is this just a company that is dealing with a mess that CEO after CEO keeps inheriting so, yeah, I do think they are in the right businesses. Obviously, the power business is the biggest problem right now. It's being hurt, hit by a huge downturn in demand. Uh, the company had over-forecasted to the tune of about three times what demand actually is, and that's an issue that's persisting through this day. But they do have great assets in healthcare and aviation, in oil and gas, although they're looking to spin off Baker Hughes. But, uh, you know, it, at the end of the day, you know, the purpose of a conglomerate is to provide diversification, uh, through ups and downturns, and GE had that with those leading businesses. So, Brooke, I, 
it's interesting. You have been following this one so closely, like to the point where I would be coming off the TV set in the morning talking about whatever Wall Street was talking about. You'd be coming on almost inevitably <laughs> to talk about GE over Story the Story that this keeps is on giving. Like six, nine months ago when it's like every day, every day, every day. You've already written a couple columns about this today, one of which points out points out in this day of corporate governance that we're talking about that GE maybe missed an opportunity here. Tell us about that. Sure. So what I meant by that is they named Larry Culp, who's the former CEO of Danaher, not only as CEO, but also as chairman, which just struck me as a really curious move because there was a fair amount of pushback when John Flannery was both CEO and chairman. It was an issue raised at GE's uh, annual meeting, as it has been for the last number of years. Um, and it got a little bit more investor support this time around. ISS backed that proposal. And it seemed at the time like a step that GE should really take if it's serious about holding its management team accountable, serious about really turning over a new leaf, sending the right message, and it didn't do that. And then again, it failed to do that today, which just seems like an oversight to me. Um, You know, I think Larry Culp is a very qualified executive. He had a very lucrative successful career at Danaher, but the pro- the business that he ran at Danaher was very different from what he will have to do at GE. Danaher was a good company when he started, and so his task was to build it up mm. into an even better company. So he's an M&A expert. He buys companies, he makes them more valuable by plugging them into Danaher's operating system. GE is not going to be doing M&A anytime soon. It needs to manage its credit rating, for one thing. Um, and, you know, it's in the process of divesting a number of businesses, including healthcare, including Baker Hughes Energy Assets. I mean, it's just a very different skill set than what he's had to use before. I'm not saying he can't do it, but why not bring in a chairman that might be able to help him and provide some fresh additional perspective? Jim, what's your thoughts on what Brooke just had to say? Yeah, we do tend to favor companies that do have an independent uh, chairman and separate from from the, the CEO. But that being said, uh, you know, Mr. Culp is coming in with a lot of credibility, with a great track record at Danaher, like she said. But also, a lot of the bad news has been cleared for him. So the decks have cleared. Guidance has been lowered. They're going to miss guidance for the year. They're going to miss cash flow numbers for the year. This write-down has been taken. So he gets to come in now and not be the victim of this bad news, but be able to get ahead of it and hopefully have a fresh start to turn the company around. Jim Cordor, equity analyst at CFRA Research, on the phone with us from New York City. Thank you for your context there. And, of course, Brooke Sutherland deals and industrials columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Your first day back from vacation, and bam, <laughs> bam. Right you back are in it. hard at work. Thanks, as always, uh, for joining yeah. us. I, I liked what we were talking about there at the end, Carol, especially the write-down, and that came up in our conversation with Dave Wilson and Joe Weisenthal. Yeah. Like, what a gift for a new CEO to sort of have that. and kind uh, of clean, maybe ha- clean slate, perhaps, yeah, right, going forward. I just want to point out GE shares, which were rallying as much as 16% today, still higher, but now it's looking at about a gain of about 8.5%, $12 25 cents a share. I remember when this stock was over 40. Amazing. I mean, it's really, it's been an unbelievable 14 months. It looks like John Flannery may not have much to show for it. No golden parachute here. We didn't get to that, (laughs) but uh, more to come on that story for sure. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week on Bloomberg Radio. Ten men working indeed, although one man really at the center of it all, that is Masayoshi Son, 
the creator of SoftBank, and most notably the Vision Fund, $100 billion, Carol Masser. That's a That's lot of money. What he has amassed from investors around the world, and it has had a profound impact on the state of investing, the state of technology, how companies are bought and sold, how they're created in the first place. Selena Wang has an amazing inside look at the SoftBank Vision Fund. She joins us now from our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Hey, Selena. So tell us about what you found here, because this is well-trod ground in terms of its importance, but you really have a great inside look here. What'd you find? So we not only spoke to the man himself, Masa, at the SoftBank headquarters, but we also spoke to pretty much every single deputy that he hired to surround himself with to deploy this huge amount of capital. And in this more than hour-long interview with him, he disclosed some never-before-heard details. Now, we know that he's close to closing this $100 billion fund, but he also said that he plans to repeat this every few years. He wants to raise another $100 billion every two to three years. He wants to deploy capital at about $50 billion per year. And the reason why is because he believes that we're at a very critical inflection point right now. Just in the same way that the internet industry started disrupting uh, categories around the world several decades ago, he believes we're at that beginning point here now with artificial intelligence. And he wants to have a stake in all of the leading companies utilizing this technology. I love what you wrote in your story, uh, something to this effect that he's not only trying to identify, but also anointing the companies that will shape the development of technology over the next several decades. You know, when we're all so focused on day-to-day news and headlines and operations, this guy is thinking like 100 years into the future and thinking about what technologies are going to dominate and making the investments to get there. Right. And it's not just 100 years. He actually has outlined a 300-year plan. And when I write anointing the next companies of the future, I mean, part of his pitch is he believes that if you pick the right company and the right entrepreneur using the right technology in a specific industry and you feed it basically limitless capital, it's going to be the category leader. And we've seen that in the ride-sharing companies. You know, Uber was able to win with a lot of cash. We saw that in Asia with Didi. And he believes he can repeat this across sectors. So, Selena, what's the net effect? What's the Masa effect here on the rest of capital raising? I mean, the the amount of money you're talking about dwarfs any other fund, but it comes close to eclipsing the the cumulative, the collective uh, venture capital industry. What What's the effect of that? When I speak to venture capitalists on background, they certainly aren't shy about saying SoftBank is really disrupting their industry. Some folks have called them bullies and too aggressive in their types of fundraising rounds. And I mean, the broad effect is that they're going to be causing these companies to stay private for even longer. IPOs are going to be drawn out uh, even further into a company's future. Many believe that they are driving valuations for these startups um, and forcing funds really to raise bigger and bigger amounts. I mean, Sequoia is currently trying to raise a $10 billion fund. Kleiner Perkins announced recently that it's breaking up partly because of all of these changes in the VC industry. So these venture capitalists that have really been the center of the ecosystem of venture funding of startups and entrepreneurs are really now having to adjust to this new reality. There's a new player in town. There's a new player in town. And whether or not it's a, a payoff ultimately for him, because he has made some really, really smart bets like Alibaba. And you also write and remind us in your story that during the dot-com bu- bubble, almost all of his investments failed. But 
in terms of a big payoff, he's making big investments in a handful of companies. So if they fail, that's not going to be good for kind of his outcome. Definitely. The outcome of this fund really relies on the success of a few companies that they've poured billions and billions of dollars into. And there's certainly plenty of skepticism out there of whether this telecom operator can really be a successful venture capital investor. He has made many big bets. The biggest payoff was Alibaba. We have yet to see the outcome of these new bets that he's making. And Selena, what's your sense of kind of how soon we'll know. I mean, and we only have about 30 seconds left, but like, how soon will we, will we know whether Masa's got it right or he had a big idea that didn't quite pan out? Well, he's convinced that he can keep up his very solid internal rate of return. I think we're going to have to see if he's able to actually raise another $100 billion in right. a couple of years, and we're going to have to wait and see if these companies actually IPO and how they perform on the public markets. It's a lot of money, though. It is. Uh, <clears throat> Selena's story is in the current issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine on newsstands now, also at Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Certainly a story we will keep watching uh, and and really a truly global story. I love the fact Selena was in Tokyo uh, for this story. Really took us, as I said, uh, inside this company. Fascinating. And and interesting as we have an administration that's pushing back on immigrants and uh, allowing tech workers to come in and maybe start up companies here. So just kind of put that together with this when you see the focus that uh, he's doing in terms of uh, creating the next wave of technology superstars. This is Bloomberg Radio. Oh, yeah. Investing in Tesla, a bit of a roller coaster. Uh, today, though, the stock up near its highs, up 16.7%, 308.50 a share. Uh, this following uh, the carmaker settlements with the SEC over uh, Chief Executive Officer Elon Musk's take private tweets. Uh, Musk and the company each paying a $20 million penalty. The CEO is going to be barred from serving as chairman for at least three years. Max Chafkin is with us, features editor at Bloomberg Businessweek, has followed uh, Tesla and Elon Musk for us, along with Ardana Hull. Uh, She, too, as her uh, page on the Bloomberg describes her, Tesla, SpaceX, all things mania. She covers it when it comes to Tesla. She's uh, in our San Francisco bureau. Let me just start with you, Dana. This news, um, this was a deal that was floating around last week, and initially Elon said no thanks, and then he came around. Well, it's amazing what like a 14% drop in your share price will do. <laughs> Hello. Um, you know, the, the feeling is that, you know, on Friday, people really got freaked out because, you know, everyone was like, oh, my God, is the SEC going to force him to step down as CEO? Is this going to drag on? And nobody wanted that. And so I think, you know, the market spoke loud and clear on Friday and then Saturday you know, the deal was announced while I, while yours truly was like driving home from the Fremont Delivery Hub, where I was like hanging around on the sidewalk trying to talk to customers and, and uh, volunteers about the, the big delivery weekend. I have to say, Dana, I loved w- one of the things you tweeted, I, be- I believe, yesterday that you really personally appreciated the timing because you had, I think, a meditation or a yoga class to go to on Sunday. Which... I went to a yoga class on Sunday, yes. <laughs> so that is, that's good news for you because you are, as we've talked about on this uh, show before, you're like the hardest working person in show business, and this beat does not relent. So, Max, come on in here. I mean, what's the, the context and perspective, like Uber Elon here? I mean, you've done some great reporting. Business Week has had several covers, I feel like, over the past six months on the, the Elon empire. Yeah, sure. And so I think part of what was going on and, and part of what 
dropped, you know, sent the share price down, is that now there's this sort of question about Elon's sort of well-being and and the idea that he would turn down this what seemed kind of to, to all of us a, a bit of a slap on the wrist um, looked not totally rational. And suddenly, after that August seventh tweet and some of these kind of seemingly other erratic tweets, there, I think investors have been worried about that. And seeing him over the weekend, as Dana said, take the deal, you know, that just kind of is reassuring because this does seem like, you know, from the outside, just a good outcome for, for Tesla and, and also a good outcome for Elon Musk. I mean, he gets to basically keep control of the company. Score, right? And yeah, and, and there's going to be a little bit more oversight, but but that's probably a good thing. That's going to give employees confidence. It should give investors confidence. Well, that's what you guys have all been writing about in terms of the Tesla board, right? It's got his brother on it. It's got buddies of Elon. Uh, Dana, does the board now change significantly? Is that where we get uh, a board at Tesla? that really holds Elon accountable? I think it depends on who the two new independent directors are and who is elevated or chosen to be the new chair. You know, right now it's a nine-member board. Uh, Steve Jurvetson is still technically on leave. They're talking about adding two new independent directors. You know, for that to shift significantly, I think you need two new really independent, truly independent people. And we just don't have any insight yet as to who those folks may be. A lot of people are, like, throwing out names, but, I mean, that's just speculation at this point. And so, Max, beyond Tesla into the broader car world and self-driving and all of it, what does that mean beyond Tesla in this case? Is this stabilizing enough that they're sort of back in the mix? Were they ever out of the mix when it comes to the company itself and the products? The, the the crazy thing through all this is that, you know, for all the problems that Tesla has had over the last year or so, um, the car, this new car, the Model 3, is getting, you know, very good reviews. Um, you know, there have been some questions about durability and, and things like that. But on the whole, people people seem to like it, and they're shipping, you know, a lot of these. And and and, and part of the only reason that, that, that there's been this, like, sort of disappointing disappointments over, you know, failed production things is that Musk set the expectations just absurdly high. So so Tesla's, you know, kind of a way ahead, at least in the U.S., uh, you know, outside of China, of all the other car makers. The issue that's that's kind of coming down the the uh, proverbial freeway is that there are all of these other car makers that all have very good-looking electric cars that are coming. This uh, the Jaguars uh, electric SUV looks pretty good, and and pretty much everybody's going to have one within the next two, you know, one to two years. And so right now, there's really only one game in town, at least in the U.S. If you want, you know, sort of a high and electric car. It's, it's a Tesla or nothing. And, and that's going to change. And it's, it's already starting to change. Hey, Dana, you, as you said, you were checking out stuff over the weekend. What did you see in terms of deliveries or what did you find out? Well, I guess one thing, you know, in, in terms of this whole, like, you know, the, the Tesla killers are coming thing, I think one thing that's really important to note is that a lot of people who own Teslas own more than one. You know, you meet people and they're like, oh, my God, I have I have a Model S and my wife has a Model X and we just ordered a Model 3 for our kid and it's going to be their college graduation present. And so these families are sort of adding to the Tesla fleet. Um, the other thing about the weekend was just that, you know, the, the showrooms were by and large really busy and there were people that, you know, had had, had, had their delivery dates kind of rescheduled multiple times, but they were still there. And they really see this as like a watershed moment, not just for the company, which is on the cusp of profitability for the first time in however many years, but just for like electric vehicles as a whole. I mean, if Tesla hits its delivery numbers this quarter, like it's like, you know, the the, the electric vehicles will finally kind of hit the mainstream. And at least here in California, I'm seeing more and more Model 3s on the road all the time. 
So, Max, crystal ball this a little bit. Is this, are we now just waiting till the next time Elon does something that is not maybe the smartest thing to do from a public uh, perspective, for, be it an analyst call, a tweet, or does it feel like maybe something is more permanently or at least changing in a more solid way? Sure. I mean, one thing that's important to keep in mind here is that for many of these customers that Dan is talking about, the, the, the people who own you know two, three of these cars, Elon Musk's erratic nature is not a bug it's a feature it's part of what makes him appealing and you know there's this you know army of supporters they're they're willing to you know put down cash money you know years before the car comes out they're willing to work for free in the showroom i mean even even a company like apple it's hard to imagine that so so we have to like so so I think if Elon just totally turned into a, a square or whatever and just never did anything <laughs> that ever, you know, broke any kind of, you know, sort of boundaries, I think, you know, th- he would be a different person and, and, and he probably wouldn't be the, the same guy and Tesla wouldn't be as appealing. So I think what you're hoping for if you're an investor in this company is that he kind of is like 10 percent on better behavior, but not, not right. just not perfect. Well, Dan, I got about 20 seconds left here. Can we expect Elon to be on better behavior? Well, I think what's what's fascinating is for the first time today they filed an 8K on his tweet. Uh, I mean, not a, I'm sorry, not on his tweet. They filed an 8K based on an internal email that he sent, and so maybe we're going to see some more legitimate like filing, regulatory filings, and reporting about his communications. I think um, one yeah. of the things that he hates about being a public company is his is the way that he has to communicate. Right. Communication. What can I tell you? Max Chafkin, thank you so much. Features editor at Bloomberg Business Week and our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Dana Hull, all things Tesla always. She had a busy weekend and it continues. Joining us on the phone from our bureau in San Francisco. Tesla shares right now up 16.7%, $309.16 a share. This is Bloomberg Radio. Springsteen for you on this Monday. Now, check it out, everybody. For at least the eighth time in two decades, eighth time in two decades, General Motors is rebooting its Cadillac brand. Here with the story, David Welch, Bloomberg News Detroit Bureau Chief with us on the phone in Detroit. So, David, um, eight times in two decades. That's about right. (laughs) What's different this time around? So, well... (laughs) This time they actually have vehicles and a, and, and a whole uh, slew of them coming and some real investment. They, they said a year or two ago that they were spending $12 billion. The first car was the CT6 sedan, the second one the XT5, and now this new one, the XT4, is coming. And then there are five more after this between now and 2020. So Cadillac has a whole bunch of vehicles coming. This one's different because it's really small. Um, but they are also, they're going to reboot marketing. It's it sort of, honestly, it's kind of an overhaul of the entire brand. They don't like to speak in those terms, but it is. That, that's are you impressed? Doing. With the X-T4? I don't know, with all of it. Um, <laughs> with anything. Are you impressed with anything, David? No. I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a You're generally writer. unimpressed. No. Um, well, you know what look, I mean. I'm, I'm actually impressed with the amount of cars they have coming. Because, look, what happened to the, the 60-second or I'll give you 20-second thing is they came up with the edgy art and science design in the late 90s under John Smith. He was the first of the eight Cadillac presidents or brand heads. The titles changed throughout the years. And they had a hit with the first Escalade and the CTS sedan. And then kind of nothing happened for a while. And then they came out with the SRX SUV. And then money got tight, nothing happened. And then they went bankrupt. And then money was tight, 
nothing happened. And so they've had several you know, kind of new products that just weren't followed up with anything. At least this time, there's a parade of new cars coming out. Uh, so from that standpoint, it is real because the money's actually there. Will they get marketing right? You know, these, GM has not been a great marketing company. Jason Kelly, do you want to buy a Cadillac? I, I do not want to buy a Cadillac, generally speaking. Although this is a this is interesting in part because, as you point out in this story, you know, the marketers and the engineers coming together. I mean, part of this does feel like a little bit of the broader story of the revitalization, in a way, of the Detroit car culture you know sort of this pride of the brands and i mean there's no more powerful brand or few more powerful brands uh than cadillac in this regard i mean you are of this place david help us understand the context here yeah so look, cadillac does have something going for it, which is recognition okay other brands like infinity uh even ford's lincoln luxury brand the recognition's not great. Cadillac's got a big name. It's a storied name. The Escalade has resonance with younger people. So it's not a matter of getting the name out. It's a matter of it's a matter of getting it to be cool. Yeah. And and so you know that that's what kind of separates it from others. And and honestly, it's why I've written about it closely over the years. In fact, I did a cover story in Business Week in yes. 2003, uh, saying you know can they can they uh, save an icon and and so even Did though you say 2003 that's right back in the day wow <laughs> i was at bloomberg where were you jason <laughs> i was here <laughs> we were all so, here yeah, but, they, but, but business week wasn't by the way <laughs> that's, right. that's right oh well um, you know they've been at this obviously many times, and the fact that it isn't totally dead yet tells you that there's some equity in the brand. But they've got to they've got to put real money, uh, which they are, and then they've got to market the the thing right. And yeah. you know, is there enough time? You know, Bob Lutz made a point, and it wasn't you know just about autonomy and mobility. He said there aren't enough decades left where brands will matter. I'm not sure I agree with him about that, but I do agree that this will take decades because you know BMW, Mercedes, Audi buyers they're pretty happy. Uh, it's, it's not like you're making crappy cars that that, that you know yeah. it, that it's easy to pull them out of it. And you mentioned Bob Lutz, of course, the retired uh, General Motors vice chairman, who we often go to to talk about the auto industry and specifically General Motors. What really jumped out at me, David, is you and you. I think wrote or your team wrote about the sales of Cadillac in China. I mean, that's a growing, booming market for them. But you also talk about the importance of a luxury brand for an automaker. That's where you make your money, right? It is, and and it's it's what sets it can set automakers apart from others in terms of how investors look at them. You, know, you take Ford. Ford has Lincoln, but it's a U.S. only luxury brand and not a great one here. Um, you look at somebody like Nissan. You know they've got a big presence globally, but not great in the luxury game. Toyota has a luxury brand, mostly in the U.S., but they sell luxury cars in Japan pretty well, so they make good money. The Germans make a lot of money, and their stocks trade at higher multiples than Ford and GM do because they're mostly luxury car makers. Uh, what Dan Ammon, the president of GM, pointed out to me once is that luxury vehicles are, eh, any given year, 10 to 12 percent of sales, but almost half the profit. So that's, that's why GM is putting more money into this and really going at it. David Welch, Detroit Bureau Chief for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from Motor City. Always great to get your perspective, DW. Also love the callback to his uh, 2003 
Business Week story. Pulling up the archives there. I know, but that shows you, <laughs> A, how long he's been doing this, which is why we count on him. But yeah. also, this is a story that's been going on for a long time. And we're going to have more with David. Uh, this story is going to be in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week uh, magazine. It's out this Friday. We're going to talk to him, too, for the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. We are indeed already available uh, online and on the Bloomberg Terminal. If you want to check it out, you are listening on this Monday afternoon to Bloomberg Business Week on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly, and she's Carol Masser. This is Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Jim Sarney back with us, managing principal at Payton and Regal, over $117 billion in assets under management. Jim with us on the phone from Los Angeles. Uh, Jim, nice to have you here with Jason and myself. Another week, uh, we're just waiting for <laughs> the deluge of news to continue. Uh, you get up in the morning. What is? What are you focusing on? What do you want to know most importantly? Well, um, Carol and, and Jason, first of all, thanks for having me on. I appreciate being you here. Um, you know, I, I, joking aside, uh, I focus on getting to the next day. Uh, there, there is just as, as we all know, there there is just a plethora of of um, things to to um, to get uh, concerned about these days. But there's also a lot of positive things, and and the positive thing, at least here in in our in, in the U.S., is that. The U.S. is clearly on solid footing, and that should continue to manifest itself in, in reasonable returns going forward. But, um, you know, I, so what do I focus on every day? I focus on, you know, trying to keep my eye on the ball and, and to be able to overlook the, the day-to-day um, noise, if you will, and, and keep my you know, eyes focused on the longer term, which I believe the longer term fundamental economic backdrop, which I, I think is quite positive. And Jim, so as you think about your worries, what's number one? Well, I'd say, Jason, that my my number one worry, uh, you know, near term, I do worry a little bit about the the upcoming midterm election, and and uh, you know, without getting uh, going down the the road of of getting political here because it's unnecessary, I just think that there are could be some potential surprises that will come out of that, and and the market does. We all know the market doesn't like surprises. And there's certainly plenty of potential for some surprises there, so I, I'd worry about that. But, but more so, um, I am a little concerned about what happens um, <clears throat> as we get into next year and, we, and the markets begin to face more normalized earnings and, and uh, uh, corporate earnings and revenue growth that by anybody's measure are still quite positive in the high single digits. But I think that we've all gotten a bit spoiled. And I think investors have gotten used to these double-digit increases in, in revenues and profits. And it does concern me a little bit what's going to happen, what will the reaction be and the impact on markets when we move to more normalized rates of growth. And is part of that because this year has been artificially boosted by, say, the corporate tax cut and 
uh, other tax elements? Cuts, increased spending as a re- and ex- anticipations of increased spending, and you know, uh, re- you know, re- repatriate repatriation of profits and things that that uh, that uh, many of these multinational corporations have done. So I think you know that there's there's been some temporary um, boost to profitability and and um, I just it, it concerns me. I I'm not again I'm not concerned that profits and revenue growth are going to be bad. I'm just concerned that we've gotten a little spoiled. Right. So is it just a case then, Jim, you know, you look at the valuations that are out there and it's just a case of or as simple as things getting ahead, uh, valuations getting ahead of themselves in the equity markets, especially when we'll still see corporate profits and revenue growth, but just not as strong as we have been seeing. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, you know, arguably we valuations across the board are, are, uh, are a full, let's say. And, uh, you know, will that cause a widespread uh, revaluation uh, in terms of PEs or whatever it is? I don't know the answer to that question. But, you know, we're, we're, we're dealing with behavioral finance issues here that uh, are beyond my uh, level of expertise. And what about sort of your mix between stocks and bonds at this point? Given a little bit of caution, do you do you adjust that uh, going forward into nineteen? How do you play that out? Well, Jason, I'm glad you brought that up because I was just going to say that that I actually I think that this bodes well for for bonds and 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 maybe not as much treasuries, but but certainly um, non-treasury um, bonds. I believe that diversification is the name of the game. It's always important, but I would argue that diversification is is never been as as important as it is today. So, you know, in terms of allocations, obviously that is going to be a function of of individual investors and what their their particular objectives are. But I think that um, portfolios should have a balance of of stocks and bonds um, with with earnings. Being what they are, and with the macroeconomic backdrop being what it is, I, you know, I, I think that non-treasury um, things like corporates and even below investment-grade corporate bonds make sense, if for no other reason, uh, one, a diversifier, and two, um, you can now get some yield in bonds. How long has it been right. since you know we could actually get yield in a bond portfolio? In terms of treasuries, where along the yield curve would you be comfortable uh, make, taking a position? I think that the front end of the curve. Carol, yeah. given given what we're seeing, you know, with even a two-year Treasury at yielding almost three percent and likely to go a little bit higher in the coming months, maybe not significant, significantly, but a little bit higher. But certainly in that anywhere, you know, five years and in shorter maturities, Treasuries I think make make absolute sense. Yields are not going to continue to go up forever, and in fact, I would even go out on a limb and say that if there are any surprises. I would argue that the surprise may not be that rates go higher than what people think, but I think the surprise could be that rates may come down mm-hmm. sooner than what people think. Jim Sarney, Managing Principal at Payton & Regal, over $117 billion in assets under management, management, joining us on the phone from Los Angeles. Los Angeles. Nice to be with you. A nice Angelino there, giving us some you know, pretty optimistic uh, perspective, nice mix of stocks and bonds. Yeah. He seems very comfortable in the market right now. And it's not like things are going to come undone. He's just saying that relative to what we've been seeing, and again, market expectations, we've seen the stock market continue to kind of grind higher to new levels, new highs, uh, that it's just a case of maybe valuations uh, getting a little bit overdone. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business 
this week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. 